0: Support for The Interchange comes from Schneider Electric. There are three Ds guiding the future of energy. They are decentralization, decarbonization, and digitization. And Schneider Electric is pioneering solutions in all three. It's developing microgrids, for example, for everything from community resiliency to higher adoption of electric vehicles. And you can find out more about Schneider's microgrid offerings in the link that we've got there in the show notes. We're also brought to you by PG&E. PG&E is helping corporations, municipalities, all kinds of organizations electrify their fleets. And if you are a PG&E customer, you can take advantage of limited time incentives right now with their EV fleet program. Make the smart choice by taking your fleet electric. Get in touch with one of their specialists in the EV group by heading over to pge.com gtmev. This is The Interchange, conversations on the future of energy from Green Tech Media. I'm Stephen Lacey, a contributing editor for GTM. I'm in Boston. Welcome. Shil Khan is out this week. And you know, that's a shame because this show is a follow-up to the deep decarbonization draft that we held right before Thanksgiving. I narrowly lost this year's hotly contested draft. But instead of wandering the streets mumbling to myself, which... I was tempted to do. I went straight to the source of the data behind our picks to better understand what happened. Project Drawdown. So I had the great pleasure of sitting down with Dr. Katherine Wilkinson, the Vice President of Communication and Engagement at Project Drawdown. If you haven't listened to the draft, go back and check it out. It's just one episode ago. This whole conversation will make a lot more sense. Catherine is one of the minds behind the Project Drawdown Solutions list that we used as the basis for our draft. We chose the list because it's so comprehensive and it spans a bunch of different areas of the global economy, pretty much everything. And Catherine herself did a lot of research on each solution. Uh, She was actually the lead writer on the book called Project Drawdown that forms the basis of the entire organization, And Catherine herself speaks a lot on this topic. She's got a super popular TED talk. She's written a couple of books. She does a lot of major media hits to spread the word on climate solutions. So I called her up to talk about her research. Where are the biggest opportunities for decarbonization? Where are the most surprising opportunities? And how do they break down along the lines of high tech and low tech? In the three episodes leading up to the decarbonization draft, we focused a lot on different areas of climate risk. So, you know, a lot of negativity. Uh, I think this is a fitting way to end the series with a more positive outlook on solutions. Dr. Catherine Wilkinson, welcome to The Interchange.
1: Thanks for having me.
0: I saw in your bio that you call yourself a climate solutionary. I love that. How do you define (laughs) a climate solutionary?
1: You know, I just felt like there needed to be some kind of word for like revolutionary solutionizers (laughs) um so that that seemed like a pretty good synthesis of 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 terms um I don't know it feels kind of it feels kind of like it might come with a cape um so I like that
0: (laughs) (laughs) have you always been a solutionary or did you grow into it
1: um no I think by probably by nature I'm a problemator or um you know like I, I I definitely sort of gravitate to understanding and analyzing the problem um and perhaps that's why climate was like such a depressing space for me to be in for <laughs> for many for many years um so I think I don't know I find solutionary to be sort of the place of courage and determination and action and I I like that place
0: So the perfect fit for Project Drawdown then, can you tell us how Project Drawdown got started and how it's an organization that revolves around this solutionary approach?
1: For sure. Yeah, so Project Drawdown is a nonprofit organization that really tries to provide the world with a resource for climate solutions. And that work really it was kind of born in response to the problem statement of climate change, which is um, incredibly rigorous, incredibly overwhelming, um, and I think begs the question, well, if essentially science is telling us we have to Change everything. What are the tools in our toolbox to do that? What are the solutions that are in hand now, today, um, to actually address both reduce the sources of emissions down to zero, but also to sequester carbon? So, Project Drawdown set out to do a big synthesis of the world's climate solutions, practices, and technologies that are in hand now, today, they're scientifically valid, they're economically viable, and they are scaling at least somewhere and to some degree.
0: We have a lot of folks who are in... Uh, academia, in research, in some kind of analysis. And so we have, you know, n- numbers wonks. Um, I'm curious how you as an organization and you specifically wrap your head around this crazy long list of potential solutions that therefore make it into this top 100 list that I'm sure is probably still going to continue to get built out. What What's the process for, you know, thinking about how to categorize all these solutions?
1: Absolutely. Um, and you're right. So our, our work continues. We are kind of a living research and communication organization. And I really sit on the communication, editorial, creative side of our work, although I bring with me um, some nerdy academic background on, on climate as well. And when we think about, right, how do we how do we do a, a meta-analysis of the world's climate solutions the question is you know again is a solution currently available and scaling at least to some degree is it economically viable in other words you know for many of these is there a business case or perhaps a social investment case And also, does the solution have the potential to reduce greenhouse gases in the atmosphere either by avoiding emissions um, or through sequestration by at least 50 million tons of carbon dioxide equivalent over 30 years? So that's kind of the, the ticket to entry for a solution. And if you're thinking about solutions, it does help to start from the sources of the problem, right? So understanding where greenhouse gas emissions are coming from, but also understanding where they're going. So they're not all staying in the atmosphere. We need also to understand um, the role of nature, right? Um, How land and also oceans uh, function as carbon sinks. And so there's a, a really nice relationship in most cases between the sources of the problem or the sinks for carbon and then the solutions that map to those.
0: Now, I am intimately familiar with the list that you have built because we studied it closely for our recent deep decarbonization draft, and that is one of the reasons yes, you did. <laughs> why we are, we are talking today. So I want to begin this part of the conversation with probably the most important question. I know you did listen to that draft. Who do you think had the better decarbonization team, me or Shale.
1: Man this is a this is a a hard question and I have to say as I was listening to to the draft um I was sort of laughing my dad is a a retired sports journalist, and I was thinking, like, he would think this was hilarious that my sort of entry into fantasy sports came via <laughs> <by> a climate <laughs> solutions. Um, <laughs> I was a very competitive uh, equestrian, but uh, but but this is sort of a new a new world for me. So anyway, I was highly entertained. Um, I think you know high drama <laughs> you all had had going. Um, I think probably I'm sorry to say this, Stephen, but I think I probably land just a little bit more in Shale's camp, um, mostly because there were some good kind of two for one specials, uh, if you will, in in that list. So you know, if you think about, right, there are essentially two things you can do to get to the point of drawdown, you can stop emissions, and you can sink carbon. And some solutions do a bit of both of those. Um, so for example, tropical forest restoration, conservation, well, agriculture, I chose
0: that one first, the tropical forest. I one. know, I, I knew that it I was know one it was a good ones. pick.
1: <laughs> <laughs> It was a really good pick. It was, um, yeah. I was sort of pained by those last minute trades you all had to had to go through. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, but in general, you know, I thought you all both did um, a really nice job of kind of thinking about a, a, a system of solutions, right? At least having uh, kind of a foot in most of the critical sectors. Um, Yeah. So I thought, I thought it was a nice job.
0: Uh, Do you have any favorite individual solution among the lists? (laughs) It sounds like maybe tropical forest was an important one. I know that you've focused on uh, feminism in the climate movement. So I'm sure educating women and girls and family planning is an important one. What were what were your top or your single favorite solutions?
1: Yeah, um this is a hard question because I spent so much uh so much time one-on-one with each solution um, over the course of of writing the book. But I really um kind of fell in love with Peatlands, I have to say. I I did not know very much about Peatlands before diving into uh, in into writing the book and um I just I, I i love that they are this very small percentage of the world's land area, but have this enormous. Um, role as a as a carbon storehouse um, I also got really geeky about silvopasture um, which comes from the Latin for forest and grazing it's literally um, as complicated as integrating livestock and in trees um, and I say that as a vegetarian and then perhaps that's an obvious uh, you know another area that I um, find really fascinating plant rich diets and also reduced food waste right what do we do on the demand side of food. Um, and I thought, you know, if I were to, to kind of grade you all on your picks, I thought it was, you know, a, a sort of notable absence. Um, that there was nothing on that, that demand side of food uh-huh. which has huge potential for, um, for impact.
0: I was thinking about going more to the source. And I know Shale mm-hmm. picked conservation agriculture. And I think we t- we're both tending to look at the the underlying systems behind those choices and not the individual choices. But noted on that, and noted on peatlands, I'll, I'll I'll be sure to stash that. Hopefully Shale doesn't listen to this conversation and I can have <laughs> peatlands for the next decarbonization for the next, draft.
1: For the next go around. I know, and I should probably... Um, tell you we are uh we're preparing to release um some updated analysis uh in late late february so um so l- lots of things staying the same but also uh lots of things changing and and new data uh advances in methodology et cetera. so you guys can have a whole nother go around then <laughs>
0: excellent excellent One thing I really like about this list is that there's a lot of ecological solutions as well. So we tend to focus on the technological solutions. I think we on this show tend to focus on them. And I think generally in the press, we tend to focus on technological solutions. But there are so many here that have to do with low tech process changes and ecological solutions.
1: Yeah. I think, um, you know, I think that there is a real tendency in the, in the climate space to focus on kind of shiny innovation, uh, you know, sexy tech. And uh, I don't know, I have theories about why that is. Um, I think, you know, it, it may be because in part, um, because so much of the public conversation and discourse about climate has been has been shaped by by white men um, who I think, you know, bring bring particular perspectives to to the table. and for sure, all of those things have essential roles to play, right? If we're going to stop using fossil fuels, we're going to need a whole bunch of technologies that um, that reduce our need for them and and replace them. But there's also a huge role for for nature, um, for the incredible quote-unquote technology of photosynthesis, which I think is like finally getting uh, getting the love it deserves. Um, soil, right, is incredibly important as a carbon storehouse, but also obviously incredibly important to a functioning food system. So I think those land, forest, um, food and agriculture solutions are especially exciting for the co-benefits that they offer from biodiversity to clean water, clean air, um, food system resilience, and and more.
0: Well, that's a, an interesting point in talking about kind of inherent biases on how you think about the issues. So when we got this anonymized list without the scores, we looked at it, and Shale and I were sitting together, and we both said... We really understand the business side of things. We understand kind of the electricity markets and a lot of these industrial solutions. But Mm -hmm. something like um, family planning or educating women and girls was really hard for us to wrap our minds around in terms of emissions reductions. Right. How do you quantify that? Um, How do you how do you think through the numbers behind the the impact. And also, you know, I mentioned it in the show, too. I think it's a conversation that's really fraught, too, Um, definitely, because a lot of white men have tended to guide that conversation. There have been tones of racism and sexism uh, when you talk about population control. So it's a really like difficult issue to talk about.
1: It is. And I I actually I thought um, I thought you guys did a really nice job of you know, kind of highlighting yeah, the 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 really problematic aspects, right, of even venturing into that territory of of that conversation. Um from a you know from a from a numbers perspective, right, um we we based all of the drawdown analysis around the UN's medium population projection for 2050. There's a high population projection, there's a low population projection. The difference between the medium and the high is a billion people and change. And the way that we end up at the medium population projection as opposed to the high population projection by and large is through closing the gaps that still exist around the world for women and girls in terms of access to high quality education all the way through secondary school and ideally beyond but also access to reproductive health care, um, which is a, a problem in too many parts of the world, and I say that also as someone who lives in the state of Georgia, where we've got our own our own challenges um, around around that topic, um, and ensuring, yeah, good access to health care for for all women and girls. So when you think about the impact of another billion people, right, who are eating, building, moving, wasting, uh, turning on lights and appliances of all sorts, etc. cetera, um, all of that has implications for, for emissions. Now, the massive caveat is that emissions are generated wildly unequally around the world. So the top 10% uh, richest people on the planet produce 50% of the world's consumption-related emissions, and I actually saw a stat the other day that the 0.5% richest people produce 15% of those consumption-related emissions. So, you know, I think another part of the problem when the the question of sort of how many feet are making their carbon footprints on the planet, um, understanding that those footprints. Have you know orders of magnitude difference between them, um, but also that you can't think about the question of sort of the size of the human family without thinking about these issues of wealth inequality production and consumption. So perhaps, you know, one of the big solutions, kind of one of those like foundational underlying solutions that's not here would be actually addressing wealth inequality, um, and addressing that, you know, kind of availability of enormous amounts of, um, kind of excess capital <laughs> that can um, you can put right into things that that generate a lot of emissions
0: and there is a clear technological intersection as well because clearly when you give folks access to clean electricity uh, and and capital you know through say for example pay as you go solar, they can get other business loans uh, women can have access to you know, the world of banking. There are all sorts of opportunities that arise when you give people access to energy, particularly through the new sort of pay-as-you-go financing mechanisms.
1: For sure. Um, We actually, you know, at one point sat down and, and tried to do an exercise of mapping the drawdown solutions to the sustainable development goals. And it got, you know, sort of ridiculous pretty quickly because there are, so many co benefits from the vast majority of solutions. But I think, you know, the interesting thing with, um, with the, you know, what we call in the book, the women and girls solutions, the, the gender equality solutions, but also with indigenous peoples land tenure, these are both solutions that start with human rights, and then end up having a positive ripple effect on emissions. That's not why they should be pursued right um we should have access to education and access to healthcare because we're human um and because it's a, a fundamental right and fundamental to to well-being um and 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 choice and opportunity um but it's still worth worth noting i think that it ends up having this um you know these follow-on uh, effects that are that are beneficial for the planet
0: A momentary pause to talk about our sponsors who are at the forefront of the energy transition, developing the solutions that we are talking about right here on this show. One is Schneider Electric. Schneider is developing microgrids for all kinds of customers like corporations and communities and governments so that they can enable a resilient, reliable, sustainable future. So to learn more about Schneider Electric's microgrid offerings, they've got 300 microgrid projects uh, that they've already built go to the link that we're providing in the show notes. We're also brought to you by PG&E. Medium and heavy-duty fleets play a huge role in California's pursuit of 5 million zero-emission vehicles on the road by 2030. And PG&E is helping figure out how to electrify those fleets of vehicles. If you're wondering where to begin, you can go check out PG&E's free guidebook on fleet electrification and infrastructure, and it's going to give you the information you need to start thinking about how to transition your fleet to electric, including advice on charger selection, site planning, funding opportunities, and more. Download your free copy of the guidebook today, no strings attached or forms to fill, at pge.com gtmev. Okay, so we ran into another sticky situation at the end when we realized there were a couple of solutions that had an N.A., a a not available (laughs) score. And uh, two of those ended up up on my team. (laughs) Uh, One of which I stole from Shale. I stole a flexible grid and then I had net zero buildings. And in fact, both of us had arguments. We we, we both said, well, these are interesting technologies because they tie a lot of the other stuff on the list together. So surely they must have a bigger carbon impact. Um, Why is it so hard to categorize and score these types of solutions?
1: sure and i i will say i i agree with 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 you know what you all said um in that episode that like you know these these are good picks precisely because there's not a number <laughs> tied tied to them so you know if you think about for example net zero buildings right how do you arrive at a net zero building well you get there through a whole bunch of efficiency measures right from Windows to insulation to low flow uh, water fixtures to solar water heating, right? All of those are individually addressed within the drawdown analysis. Also, how do you get to a net zero building? Well, you probably need distributed electricity generation of some kind, probably rooftop solar. Well, the emissions impact of rooftop solar is counted within that solution. The emissions impact of um, better insulation is counted within that solution. So, if we were to also include those numbers within, you know, kind of a more synthetic solution of net zero buildings, then we'd be double counting. And that is, you know, one of the the really tricky pieces of, of this analysis is making sure that if you're accounting emissions in one place you're not also counting them somewhere else. Um, grid flexibility is slightly different in the sense that, you know, we think about it as an enabling solution. So there is no way you get anywhere close to 100% clean, renewable electricity without more flexible grids and good um, both distributed and utility-scale energy storage. So um, they're included in the solution set because they're so fundamental to this uh, energy transition that we're making. But at the same time, again, if we were to allocate emissions to uh, emissions reductions to grid flexibility and also to wind turbines, um, we'd we'd end up in a in a double counting situation. So, um, what we did was actually you know try to allocate those emissions reductions kind of as close to the site of impact as as possible.
0: Yeah, and, and flexible grid feels like a sticky one in particular because it could be a technological solution. There are all sorts of ways to make the grid more flexible. Um, in terms of, you know, power electronics and battery totally. storage and distributed energy. And then it's also a regulatory challenge as well. So you don't have a flexible grid unless you have the regulatory mechanisms in place to make it happen.
1: Definitely. And I think, you know, that's a a, a really good point is, you know, solutions Don't scale themselves, right? Solutions need accelerators. Policy is a big one. Um, Shifts in capital is a big one, but so is changing culture um, and and changing behavior. So, I think it's important to remember, you know, that when Project Drawdown says the world's the word solution, we're really talking about. Those particular technologies and practices, but they're dependent on um, you know a whole variety of accelerators to to move them forward.
0: Well, I presume that this list isn't built to for the amusement of. Um... You know, energy analysts and journalists to have a fantasy draft with <laughs> no, um, no,
1: but it probably should be <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, have you seen others adapt this list in creative ways to think through you know the enormity of these solutions?
1: yeah, um, for sure, so I think uh probably the most entertaining, um, but also a a very kind of one-off example. We had, um, we had an event at the Omega Institute recently focused around drawdown and, and education for what we call our work on drawdown learn. And I gave a talk and at the end, a man came up to me, opened his jacket And he was wearing a shirt that said, ask me how I memorized the 100 drawdown solutions. And (laughs) he was not really actually interested in climate. He was like a memory guru. Oh my (laughs) god, A memorization guru. And he had memorized the solutions in order with their gigaton impact. Um, And then the coming attractions that we include in the book, of which there are 20. They're coming attractions, so there's not analysis tied to them, and in the same way as as the other solutions. And he then developed a whole other system um, tying those solutions to a photograph of a bathroom. Anyway, it was how um, wonderful
0: is that? How did he come up? Very interesting.
1: (laughs) I think someone who was interested in climate had crossed his path and said, "You know, um, do you think there's a way to apply your?" you know, approaches or methodologies to this list of climate solutions. And he was like, yeah, let's, let's give it a whirl. Um,
0: Send him to Capitol Hill with a megaphone.
1: (laughs) Yeah, exactly. I was like, oh no, do I tell him that we're going to have like updated analysis early in 2020? He's going to (laughs) have to re-memorize everything Probably he will love that. Um, No, there's, in kind of more serious examples, there's um, a really wonderful effort called the Drawdown Eco Challenge. And what they wanted to do was actually think about the Drawdown solutions from kind of an individual agency perspective, right? Some of these are things that you can just do, right? as, um, As an individual human. But some of them are, not, right? They're more systemic. They are implemented by farmers or utilities or companies um, or municipalities. And so... I think they did a really cool approach to actually um, kind of creating these different footholds of action across the solutions, and then designing a, a competition around it. And it gets used in, um, you know, in workplaces and schools. Uh, it's it's pretty cool.
0: And do you see lawmakers or staffers within legislatures using these solutions?
1: Yeah. So it's 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 pretty interesting. You know, we get. We get anecdotes and emails and things from folks. you know, we know that drawdown is sitting on, yeah, l- lots of staffers' desks. Um, it's being used by foundations and philanthropists to think about um, how to have the most impact in the climate space. It's being used by impact investors to think about, um, you know those investments in in climate solutions. I think, one of the most exciting efforts that's underway right now is actually happening here in Georgia. Um, I live live in Atlanta, and. There's a a sort of research consortium across Georgia Tech, Emory, and the University of Georgia called Georgia Drawdown, and they're taking the global analysis that Project Drawdown did and actually bringing it down to the scale of a state, um, which is fascinating, um, but also it's really important because this is the kind of geographical context in which policy gets made, um, decisions get made, right, where we see. Um, really see the possibility for ways of thinking about collective action on climate solutions within the state. And they've done kind of a first cut of that analysis, and it, it should be done this summer. And they're doing a, a really wonderful job of kind of documenting the process that they're using as well. So we hope that it's something that can be relatively easily replicated um, by other other places, um, other states, countries, cities, you name it.
0: So the last wild card of this whole draft was what ended up being the solution that offered the most CO2 savings, uh, uh, it was the most equivalent CO2 savings, let's say. Yeah. And that is refrigerant management. Uh, so, So <laughs> <Ta-da>! <laughs> that surprised us all we had no idea yeah um and 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 so hfc's which are the replacement for cfc's apparently have an enormous warming capacity and i knew that intellectually but i had no idea that it was such a big problem
1: yeah i i mean this was one that surprised us as well and certainly it does not get the the press it deserves right um so the thing about about refrigerants um, is there are not that many of them, actually, uh, if you compare them, for example, to the quantity of liquid fuels, um, but they are super potent greenhouse gases. So hydrofluorocor- hydrofluorocarbons have the heat trapping potential that is a thousand times or more that of carbon dioxide. So even when you have a, a relatively small number of them, they, they pack a big punch. And because they're everywhere, they're often not handled very well. We end up with leaks in our uh, HVAC units and our refrigerators when it's time to dispose of those pieces of equipment. Oftentimes, um, refrigerant chemicals uh, simply sort of escape into the atmosphere. So there's a, a big opportunity, definitely does not fall under the sexy, shiny tech category, but just better managing leaks and disposal. And then maybe what does fall under more of a sexy tech category, which is going to be coming in, in our um, kind of next wave of, of analysis, is actually looking at alternatives to HFCs. So phasing out their use all together, which the world has committed to, um, through the Kigali amendment to the Montreal protocol.
0: Was it something that surprised you when you were doing the research?
1: Definitely surprised me. Um, also, you know, refrigerant management, like that's a part of my, my job, right. Was to write about all of these solutions in a really, interesting, compelling human way. (laughs) Um, And managing leaks and disposal of refrigerants doesn't like necessarily lend itself to like super exciting uh, uh, writing.
0: (laughs) Well, a lot of these solutions don't necessarily. um, I mean, I think you've done such a great job creating a compelling case for all these solutions, but many of them are more you know boring process related uh solutions you know uh, going back to our original point that they're not necessarily all technological or if they are technological they're hitting industries that we don't often think about because they aren't as exciting
1: yeah definitely and any and even when they are technological like actually understanding you know what is an led light bulb right i think that's certainly something that i had never thought hard about right Um, and so I think you know trying to translate solutions that can either be boring or impenetrable or some mix of the two um, into something that's actually really interesting because of the ways it intersects with our lives, with society, with our history. I mean, one of my favorite anecdotes from the book is – that the first rooftop solar installation went up in New York City in 1884, which was only two years after Thomas Edison brought the first coal-fired power plant online, which is like, that's fascinating, right? And at that point, all that these kind of tinkerers and experimentalists of that day had figured out was that a thin layer of selenium would conduct just a little bit of electricity when exposed to sunlight but i think you know we've been at a lot of this longer than we think uh in in many cases and i think you know it's 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 really cool to see these things in their context and in their relationship to one another
0: well when we do this draft again and we have teams i know who i'm bringing on my team
1: um i would be happy to be on your team <laughs> <laughs>
0: Well, thank you so much for helping us dig deeper into these solutions and contextualizing it all. We really appreciate it, Catherine.
1: Oh, it's my pleasure. Um, Thanks for sharing our work with your listeners.
0: And that is our show. Thanks so much to all of you. Thanks to Catherine Wilkinson for the conversation and for all the research she did behind these solutions and providing the inspiration for the decarbonization draft this year. I hope you find similar inspiration as well. And if you've got some creative ways to use this list, maybe it's fantasy sports, maybe it's some other use, let us know. Hit us up on Twitter. You can find Catherine Wilkinson there. You can find me and Shale there and Interchange Show. So we want to be inspired by you and uh, help us gamify this stuff so it makes it more accessible to the people who are implementing the solutions. If you want to heckle us, praise us, or just politely pat us on the back, you can, again, find us there on Twitter. And as always, please send out a link to this show to anyone who you think would benefit. And... A rating and review on Apple Podcasts is also super helpful. The Interchange is produced and edited by me and Daniel Waldorf. We are a co-production of Green Tech Media and PostScript Audio. Thanks for listening. We'll catch you soon.